and thank you for having me. It's an honor to be able to come and join a PCA congregation. As you might expect, many, many of the assignments that the Lord has led us to in the Navy have been ones that we don't, I don't have a lot of freedom on Sunday morning. The various places I've been, I happen to have had the pleasure of having served in two of the military boot camps as a full-time chaplain. Some years ago, when we were in uh, Chicago, I was stationed at the Navy's boot camp uh, for, for three years. And certainly, my family attended a PCA church there locally. They didn't see me much. And in the most recent assignment, just before we moved, we just moved to Pensacola just barely, over, just barely two months ago. And before we moved there, we were serving at the Coast Guards boot camp in Cape May, New Jersey and very occupied on Sunday morning. That part of the reason I wanted to share that in particular, oftentimes I get asked, what is it like to be a military chaplain, a Bible-believing evangelical Presbyterian church in America, military chaplain serving in a world that is increasingly hostile to what it is that we believe? Are you free to teach? Are you free to preach the faithful gospel? Are you free to preach scripture? What's, What's it like? At times, there are times that we have to be as gentle as doves yet wise as serpents. I will certainly notice that. But in order to give you a glimpse as to what your chaplains are preaching, I'm going to try to give you a glimpse of that this morning by sharing essentially the same message that I used to give to the recruits back at Cape May, at, uh, at uh, the Cape May boot camp at, uh, at uh, New Jersey, at, uh, at the uh, Coast Guard boot camp. Now I'm going to you know, have a little aimed a little bit more for, for you all where you're coming from in this morning, but essentially what I'm going to be sharing with you is one of the messages that I gave in the series of putting on the full armor of God that I gave to the Coast Guard recruits. Putting on the full armor of God, you've heard that message before, you've heard that uh, metaphor perhaps, so if I invite you, if you would, our first message, first scripture we'll be looking at this morning coming from the book of Ephesians chapter 6. So you're invited to turn there with me. It's going to be take a couple of other passages we'll be looking at as we walk through. But this is where I'm going to start, in the book of Ephesians chapter 6. Now, as you're turning there, why would I use this as a main series? I used to develop a series of between seven and eight messages that I would give to the recruits at Cape May, talking about what does it mean to, to put on the helmet of salvation? What does it mean to wear a breastplate of righteousness? Today we're going to be looking particularly at what it means to take up a shield of faith, what that means in the context for us as Christians. What does that shield of faith mean? What does it look like? How do we live in a hostile world, in a world that is, is facing all sorts of challenges to our hearts, to our, to our very lives? What does it mean to take up a shield of faith in that context? So what I'm going to be sharing with you this morning is essentially what I would be sharing with the Coast Guard recruits over the last couple of years. Let me read this and then we'll take a look. And then again, we'll dive specifically into the shield of faith this morning. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God's that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. 
and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Just glancing at that, if you have a military background yourself, you could imagine why I could use this passage very easily to introduce the various aspects of the gospel and Christian living to these young Coast Guard recruits. Putting on armor is something that we are very familiar with in the military, especially when I was with Marine Corps assignments, but in various other military uh, communities. It's very common to get very familiar with putting on that Kevlar helmet that we wear, put on that large flak jacket, not unlike the uh, breastplate that the Roman soldiers would wear, having different uh, belts and harnesses that we would use to keep our gear together and hold all the different equipment we would have. And you could imagine why Paul was using this metaphor. The Roman soldiers that people were very familiar with, they saw that metaphor right on the, in their daily lives. The recruits are getting very used to what it is to put on the body armor, to put on the, the helmet, and to be, be more familiar with their weapons. Now, right at the beginning, I would warn them, when you think about this, this passage and this concept of putting on God's armor, putting on this full armor of God, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, at first, it sounds very encouraging, and rightly so. God is in the business of protecting his people. He is, as the sermon title I borrowed from one of the Psalms, he is a shield for all who take refuge in him. We are guarded. The different aspects of the Christian faith, the trust that we have in him, the righteousness that we live, they are going to guard us in so many ways. At the same time, when do you put armor on if you're in the military? Right when you've taken leave and you're on vacation visiting your family at home? Right when you've returned from a deployment and you're getting rest and relaxation and what they refer to as the morale, welfare, and recreation, you put on armor when you're getting ready to go fight, when you're going into dangerous territory. Even the Coast Guard puts on the helmet and the flak jacket when they're getting ready to do a potentially dangerous police action. And you see it in what Paul wrote here. You're putting on the armor because we're in the middle of a fight. We are in the middle of a war. Have you ever been asked that question or maybe wrestled it with yourself? The age-old question that people have asked, if God is all good and all powerful, why does suffering exist? Why does evil exist in this world? Why do we struggle with these things? Friends, to some part, the answer is because we're at war. It's a war that God has designed for us to fight and the reasons we're going to take a look at here. John Piper a Reformed uh, Baptist pastor in uh, Minnesota used to use the phrase wartime mentality. Christians, don't forget to have a wartime mentality. That doesn't mean that every single moment of your life is involved in warfare in the same way that even when we're in combat situations, not every single moment is spent. There's times that we pull people out of combat situations to get refreshed, to get encouraged, so they're ready to go back into the fight. But never forget that everything we do in this world is a, is a combat mentality. Or, as anyone who knows me knows I'm a huge fan of reading the works of C.S. Lewis, think about this. He said it this way, if you think of this world as a place intended simply for our happiness, you might find it quite intolerable. But if you think of it as a place of training and correction, and you realize it's not so bad, imagine a set of people all living in the same building, but half of them think it is a hotel and the other half think it is a prison. 
those who think it's a hotel might think this is quite intolerable. And those who thought it was a prison might decide that it was really surprisingly comfortable. My friends, my brothers and sisters in Christ, this life is not a tourist destination. This life is a battlefield. When we go into it like that, when we think that who it is that we're serving, what he has called us to be, we are walking into a battlefield. If you think that this life is supposed to be a resort, a tourist destination, you might look at it and think, it's easy to complain. God, why didn't you make this better? God, why is this? Why, God, why, this, is, this is intolerable over here. Why am I living this way? Why am I suffering in this way? Why did you not fix this a little bit better for me? If you realize and think about this world and recognize it is a battlefield, you start to realize, you know what? Given the fact that we are at war, not just with the enemies that we can see, but the ones that we can't see, and we are under constant bombardment, honestly, this isn't that bad. The Lord continues to pour out blessings on us, things that we enjoy, different tastes that we remember that he is good, all in the midst of the fact that we are in a battlefield, and you realize he has taken care of us. In particular, when you think of the shield of faith, what does it mean to take up that shield of faith and trust him? And we'll dive into that much more specifically here. But my friends, my brothers in Christ, my sisters in Christ, the main thing I'd like you to remember, this world is not a resort. This world is your boot camp. Let's take a look. The shield of faith. The shield specifically was a large wooden shield that the Roman soldiers typically used. It was coated in leather, and it was designed that way so that they could coat it in water in order specifically to douse the flaming arrows. <clears throat> Many of the enemies of the Roman Empire at the time used to use flaming arrows with a fuel attached to it that if it hit your wooden shield, that shield is going to start catching on fire very quickly and not be much use to you anymore. And I used to remind the recruits at Cape May... Congratulations, being a Christian means you're going to get shot at. Be ready for it. Don't be surprised. Sometimes, and you know this, there are plenty of pastors in this world that will tell you, come to Jesus and everything will be fine. Everything will work out for you. You won't suffer. You won't have difficulty. He'll take care of every physical need you could possibly imagine. My friends, read through Scripture. You become to Christ, you're going to get shot at. If the world hates you, don't be surprised. It hated me first. You remember Jesus warning you of that. You go into this world, you're going to be shot at, and not simply by the, people, by the acts of Satan in this world. This world is not as it should be. There is suffering, there is pain, there's, there's the physical things we run into. This world, you are going to get shot at. What does it mean for you to take up that shield of faith? Well, Shield of faith, let me clarify the word faith, and then I'm going to dive into practically what does that look like. The word faith in this context. The word faith is used to describe multiple different things throughout the scripture. Sometimes Paul and, and Luke in particular use the term when they describe the faith. And in that context, they're talking about the Christian religion as a whole, all the various doctrines of it. You might remember when Paul in the book of Galatians said, described himself and in that beautiful phrase where he said, you know, now this man is preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. He's talking about the Christian religion, the faith as a whole that we have. Sometimes that word faith is used in that context. Sometimes, and predominantly in the New Testament, it's using the phrase when it talks about 
saving faith, the phrase we would use there. What does it mean to be saved? It is by grace that you've been saved. Many of you probably know the passage, right? It's by grace that you've been saved through what? Through faith, our trust in Christ, his salvation for us. Not by being good enough, not by what we've accomplished, not by getting more brownie points than the next person, by our trust in him and the salvation that he offered for us on the cross. That's our salvation. So that the word faith, predominantly in the New Testament, is talking about having faith in Christ for our salvation. But it's also used in a larger context when it's talking about trusting God, not just for our salvation, but for everything. It was used by, in particular by Jesus at one point when they were out on the, on the sea and a storm came and his disciples were terrified. Experienced fishermen, they'd been out on the ocean. They had one of those storms that they were terrified they were about to die. You remember, they woke Jesus up and he got up and rebuked the, the storm, told the storm to be quiet. And then they were stunned in amazement. Who is this that even the wind and the sea obeys him and jesus words at that point where is your faith now in that context he wasn't talking specifically about saving faith for eternal life he was talking about what are you worried about right now in front of you now that included trust in jesus but it included the various arrows the various fears stop and think if it's not too personal for me to ask from the pulpit what are your fears this morning what are your struggles where have you been shot at? Where are your wounds that you're dealing with right now as you've been walking through this world? Some of you are younger, you've had some of them. Some of you are older, you have hit, some of you are dealing with them right now. All of us, if you've been in this world, you've been shot at. You've been, what does it mean for us to trust God in the midst of these really hard times? As an aside, you remember that happened to Job? He knew what it was to trust God, and Satan came. Yeah, of course he trusts you. You haven't given him any reason not to. Now, most of us probably have not suffered the same degree that Job has, but we've all faced some of those trials, tribulations, temptations, heartaches, those moments that tempt us, if I can be so bold, to not trust God, to not have faith in him. So what we're talking about, about taking up the shield of faith this morning is trusting him, not just for your salvation. I hope that's true of all of you in here. I'm going to ask you toward the end to search your heart and make sure that's true. Not just trust him for your salvation, but trust him for Monday morning, what you're going to be facing then, the people you're going to have to interact with, the struggles that you're going to have, the hospital visits that are coming up, whatever they might be. What are those things that you are tempted, that Satan comes to you and says, you can't really trust him. Why didn't he take care of this? Why didn't he protect you in this way? What does it mean to take up a shield of faith, trusting him boldly in the midst of these circumstances? That's where I want to lead you. And I've got three passages to walk through. And essentially, again, you're getting a glimpse as to what I was sharing with the recruits back at the Coast Guard boot camp at Cape May. I had a program that I would give them that had these scriptures in it for them to study, them to walk through. So the very first I invite you to turn with me is the book of Genesis chapter 50. Familiar story, perhaps, to some of you, if you've heard the story of Joseph. In your Sunday school classes. Coast Guard boot camp 
is the most difficult of the five military services to get through. People don't believe me when I hear that, especially when I say that and there's any Marines in the crowd. <laughs> and they're like, okay, Chaplain, you haven't been to Paris Island. Yes, I have been to Paris Island. I was a chaplain stationed at Paris Island in my reserve time back in 1999. I watched what the Marines went through. I saw how intense it was. I saw how the Marine recruits retreated. <clears throat> You know, at the Marine Corps boot camp, they have all the squad bays and all the recruits lined up sleeping, but at the, in, throughout the entire night, they have one Marine recruit standing on each side of the squad bay, standing at attention, watching the wrecks. They call it fire watch. You're watching to make sure nothing catches on fire. Imagine doing that for an hour in the middle of the night. You're standing there, that rack is not on fire, that recruit is not on fire. <laughs> It's an intense place. It's a very intense place what they do at Marine Corps boot camp. At the same time, what I explain to people when people say, how in the world could you say that Coast Guard boot camp's more difficult? And I, I, can, I can corroborate this because during my, my roughly three and a half years there at the Coast Guard boot camp, I talked with about 30 former Marines, right, that had had gone through Marine Corps boot camp, had served their four to six years enlistment in the Marine Corps, and then later in life decided they wanted to do something different, joined the Coast Guard, went to Coast Guard boot camp, and they're in my office telling me, this is hard. I wasn't expecting this. this is, is this more stressful than your time at Marine Corps boot camp? Oh, yeah. For this reason. <clears throat> at Marine Corps boot camp, essentially, unless you physically break something and get injured, you know when your graduation day is. You start... One week, three weeks, five weeks, 10 weeks, 13 weeks you're graduating. And every week you, along with the other Marines that came through your company, those other Marine recruits, one step after another are getting closer to that graduation day. And you can count it down. That's when I'm graduating. Here I go, here I go, here I go. Navy boot camp is the same way, essentially, by the way, that unless something really extraordinary happens, every week you're moving forward to, the, to your graduation day. Coast Guard boot camp, for various reasons that I can explain later if you're interested, they make it way tougher. They're watching every single one of those Coast Guard recruits with a spotlight, with a microscope, watching, are you doing everything exactly? I've seen recruits get pulled out of their company, moved backwards in training, and therefore their graduation date moves, and they have to call their parents and say, I'm not graduating when I thought I was. It's going to be two weeks later because you didn't shave properly today. Or you didn't, you didn't have your, your shoes on this side of the rack when they were supposed to be on that side of the rack. And they live under that terror, constantly afraid that if they mess anything up, even the smallest things, they get, they get small warnings, but those warnings are there that if you get a few of them, pack your things, you're moving back to another company that might be one, two, sometimes three weeks backwards. And that's a terror on them. And that's why they can relate to the story of Joseph. I give them a little bit more detail. I'm assuming that many of you are familiar more or less with the story of Joseph. I want to give you the basic, basic details so you understand just how powerful his words are here in Genesis chapter 50. But you remember the story of Joseph. I'll give you the basic story. He was given dreams, promises by God that he was going to be used for something special. Dreams where he saw people, especially his own family, bowing down, giving him that, that vision that he's going to be in a place of significant leadership someday. 
don't know if you've ever felt that, that God had something in store for you. Maybe not those very direct dreams and prophecies that he gave to certain people in his scripture, but that you had a path. You knew something you wanted to accomplish. And then something gets in the way. Something seems to interfere with it. If you remember the story of Joseph, he was 17 years old when these dreams were happening to him and his jealous brothers in murderous jealousy, hatred, sold him off as a slave. They were originally plotting to to murder him and cover him up, but out of the goodness of their heart, they decided to get rid of him simply by selling him off into slavery when he was 17 years old. Now, if you're familiar with the story, you know that he was falsely accused of a crime while he was a slave, winds up in prison. Eventually, he speaks to the, uh, the, the people that were in prison that were friends or, or servants of Pharaoh, they go. Eventually, he gets an audience with the king, the Pharaoh of Egypt, is recognized by his gifts, and eventually is promoted to work directly for Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Anyone know how long that took? The Bible says he was 17 years old when he was sold off as a slave. And it says he was 30 years old when he had his appointment with Pharaoh. Now, I tell the recruits at Cape May when I was there, because sometimes some of them get delayed. They get pumped backwards. And when they get pumped backwards, sometimes they don't immediately go to their new company because it's a long wait, and they don't want to have them repeat too many things. So they go into a holding status where they don't have active training. But you're still a recruit. You're still stuck. You're still isolated, still in all of the the ramifications and difficulties of being in in recruit training. Sometimes people are there because they get injured. There's an injury. Sometimes it's pretty significant, and they want to continue on in their training, or they've already made that commitment, so the minor injury sometimes gets more significant. And I've seen recruits that were there for weeks upon weeks, sometimes months upon months, sometimes four, five, six months, in boot camp, having to act like a recruit, all of the restrictions, all of the lack of communication from home, everything, but not progressing in their training, not feeling like they're getting anywhere. They refer to it as the regimental hold element, or RHE, right? Regimental hold element, RHE. And that's kind of the status of just kind of being stuck and not getting to where you were trying to go. My encouragement to them, if it's any encouragement, was to say, I know it's challenging. I know it's difficult. But to my knowledge, no recruit has been in RHE for 13 years. Joseph got put in prison with absolutely no hint, no clue, with these promises that God had given him. God had promised these things, but no particular timetable, no particular date written down, and he was waiting. And it ended up being 13 years until finally everything started to line up and God brought him to the place he had promised him. What was his hope in the midst of that? What got him through? The very end of the story, and I've I've fast-forwarded so much of the events of Joseph's life, but I want you to pay attention to just how powerful these words are. If you look with me in Genesis chapter 50, down in verse 18, he reunited with his brothers after many years forgave them, had a tremendous reconciliation with them. And then they came to him after their father had died, and they were kind of worried, what if he was just being nice to us for our father's sake? So they came and gave him one last plea just after their father Jacob had died. 
And it says this in verse 18, his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. That trust in God's providence over all things. That's one of the passages that when I was struggling and wrestling with larger questions of the faith, in particular, do I believe this predestination thing? That was one of them that pushed me, and I realized Joseph's brothers did evil. They chose to do evil things against him, and yet Joseph is able to have the boldness to say this was God's intention. And he uses the exact same word carefully to say, you intended evil, God intended this for good. This wasn't an accident. This wasn't something that escaped God's control. It was not something that God didn't see coming. This was God's plan to do something good. God was doing this. So in the midst of whatever situations, whatever circumstances in life, the health concerns, the fears, the relationship difficulties, the challenges in our careers, the various things that keep us awake at night, I know I've been there, but the various things, the one thing that we should start with is remembering this did not escape God's control. That's why, if you're familiar with the beautiful words in Westminster Confession of Faith, when it says, he ordains how many things? Whatsoever comes to pass came from the hand of God. So that's the first thing I'd call your attention to. That was the first thing I would share with the recruits there at, at Cape May. At the same time, knowing that God is in control of things doesn't necessarily make us feel better. Let's be honest. Great. I wonder what torment he has for me today. What challenge, what valley of the shadow of death is he going to lead me into today? When, when I started reading through the Psalms in grad school and I was studying and really unpacking the Psalms, I started realizing there's a lot of comfort there, but a lot of, all right, hang on for the ride. And Psalm 23 was one of them. Even though you lead me into the valley of the shadow of death, whoa, time out. You're leading me where? How about you lead me around the valley of the shadow of... No? He's leading you into the valley. Lord, I would trust you more if you just kind of avoided those. Why is he doing that? You put it this way. The shield of faith takes on its power when you trust not only that God is in control of all things, but you trust his heart, that he is doing good for you. And you guys can hear me over the rain okay? Tell me if you can't. So secondly, if you would join with me, turn in your Bibles to a similar statement of faith that we're going to find in the book of Acts. And take a look at the book of Acts chapter 2. Have you ever tried to share a difficulty or a a painful experience with someone who just really didn't get it, who had maybe had never had an experience like that before, and they give you a response such as, oh, it's good for you, it'll build character. Kids? You ever have a relative that said something like, oh, it's good for you, it builds character, and you're bleeding and you're crying, oh, it's good for you, it builds character. Great, thanks. 
Without going into too much detail, I remember one time, this was when I was about 23 years old, and I had gone through a very difficult heartache uh, in, <clears throat> in recent years. And there was a minister I had come in, in contact with, and I sat down to try to share with him just how much this thing was still hurting with me. And I, I opened up my heart a little bit and told him what had happened and shared that I was still really, really <clears throat> aching with some of the, the heartache and the pain of it. I remember very well his words. It was, that was five years ago. You're not over this yet. <clears throat> I'm not going to talk to you anymore. How do you feel when you pray to God? When you lay before the Lord your hearts, your pains, your doubts, your fears, do you have a sense that the Lord is looking down on you saying, come on, it's good for you, builds character. Come on, you should be over this. Or do you know that you are going and speaking with someone that has genuine compassion? Let's take a look. Acts chapter 2, and this is one glimpse of many that I could give, but a reminder of what the incarnation means, what the Trinity means. Take a look at this with me. Acts chapter 2, I'll start reading in verse 22. And this is Peter preaching to the crowd that was there at Pentecost after the resurrection and after Jesus' ascension. So Peter preaching... And he says, men of Israel, hear these words. This is Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now, at first glance, you might notice that actually sounds not terribly different than the testimony that Joseph gave to his brothers. You all intended evil. God intended this for good, not just used it, not just worked around it, not just figured a way to do something good out of it. He intended this. The crucifixion of Jesus, the Son of God being crucified, tormented, and killed on that cross, Was that because evil people rebelled and did evil to him, developed a a fake trial and took someone they should have recognized to be the Son of God and had him executed? Or was Jesus crucified because this was the eternal plan of God for our salvation? The answer is yes, of course. You see that right there in Peter's words. It's both. In fact, if you're interested in this kind of thing, it's even Peter uses the same verb form of the word that, that Joseph used, intended. Right? You intended evil against me. God intended it for good. And here Peter says, this man was handed over by God's specific intent. This was God's purpose, his plan. And yet what was that plan? For God's son to suffer at the hands of wicked men. There's so much we could unpack here, but here's a couple of things I'd like to draw your attention to. Firstly, when you pray, and if I can unpack the mystery of the Trinity just a little bit without going too much, when you pray, do you realize you are praying to a God who literally knows what it feels like to be abandoned by God? Have you had those moments sometimes where you know God's there, you know he hasn't left, you know you're a believer, you know, but boy, as I used to tell the recruits, it feels like your prayers are bouncing off that rack right above you. Feels like you've been abandoned. Christian, if you understand 
who Jesus is. This was not just a man who was crucified. This was the eternal Son of God. The Son of God who the Father had such delight in that occasionally he couldn't hold himself back and spoke in an audible voice, this is my Son whom I love, listen to him. That is the one who was hanging on the cross and cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You are praying to Lord Jesus, the Son of God who literally knows what it feels like to be abandoned by God. Because of that, secondly, he will not lead you into something that he does not know by experience. Okay, this is what it means when the scripture says that he was tried or tempted in all ways as we are. He knows what this feels like. He knows what it is to suffer. He knows what pain is. He's familiar with suffering, a man acquainted with suffering, the scripture says. He is not going to lead us into anything that is not, that scripture reminds us not too much for us to bear. He knows what it's like. So it's not as if someone who has no idea what suffering is say, oh, go ahead and do it. It'll be good for you. And they have no clue what it is. We're talking about being led by the hand of someone who's been there. I shared it this way to the recruits that when you are being led through the valley of the shadow of death, you look up and the hand that is guiding you through that valley has a scar in it from the nail. That's who's leading you, not someone who's just pushing you saying it's good for you. You're being led by someone who knows suffering. And thirdly, as a reminder, why did Jesus suffer? Not simply to be familiar with our suffering, although that certainly is a result. Not simply to show it. Why did Jesus die? To rescue us from the, what our sins deserve. To rescue us from pain. He came into the world. He does not like to see his people suffer. Let me say it again. He does not like to see his people suffer. That he does he allow those things because he knows what's good for us. But God does not like it. Take a look with me in our third passage. I want to look at, if you would turn with me, the book of Revelation chapter 21. The happiest days of the recruit's life, you could imagine, is what? Graduation day. Eight weeks, perhaps eight weeks, maybe nine weeks, maybe ten weeks, maybe more. But when they finally make it to that graduation day and their family comes and there's a reunion and they finally have their last uh, celebration and the last word in the graduation ceremony is disband. And that company no longer is a recruit company and each one of them is individual and they run to their family and have the, 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 the reunion with their, their uh, mothers and fathers, sometimes with their wives and children. It's a very happy day. What do you think the happiest day is for the, for the company commanders that have put them through those eight weeks of torment? Graduation day. And I tell the recruits this, and they never believe me until they get to the end, and then they see it. But I tell the recruits in week two and week three and week four, I used to tell them, your company commanders are looking forward to the day that you graduate because they're, <clears throat> they're going to come up and shake your hand and tell you well done, and they're looking at me like, no, they're not. <laughs> no, you haven't seen my company commanders. Yeah, they will. And one thing I'll tell them is when you get to the end, what you're going to do as soon as graduation's done, if you're like every other recruit I've seen, is you're going to line up 
so you can get your picture taken right next to your company commander. No, 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 not with him. No, no, no. And you're going to love them. Oh, no. And every time when they would graduate, it would be the same. The recruits are looking forward to their graduation day. Who's looking forward to that graduation day even more? The company commanders that have been tormenting them <laughs> and challenging them and facing and putting stress upon stress and difficulty after difficulty. <clears throat> if you're familiar at all with the Coast Guard, it, it, it attracts a certain kind of person, you might expect. Someone who loves the idea of military service, of wearing the uniform, serving the country, but they have a little bit more of a humanitarian, uh, just personal touch about their lives, and they're attracted to the Coast Guard service that's doing a little bit more humanitarian and rescue missions and drug enforcement and those sorts of things. The people are really, really nice people. They are compassionate. They are friendly. They are some of the most encouraging, kindest people I've talked with, unless they're talking to a recruit. And they put on what they need to to be able to get them through. But when I talk to them as the chaplain, kind of behind the scenes, I can tell they are looking forward to the day that they can turn that off. They can stop the act and they can say, okay, now we don't have to do that anymore. Call me by my regular title. Let's go. Let's shake hands. They're looking forward to that, probably more than the recruits are, if you could believe that. The Lord is looking forward to your graduation day more than you are. Read these words with me and see if you don't notice this. The heart of God, that who it is that we're trusting from the book of Revelation chapter... 21. Perhaps you've heard it before, but I want you to think of it in this context. In Revelation chapter 21, this glimpse that John had of what that day is going to be like. Verse 1 of chapter 21 of Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, and by the way, Listen to everything God says, but when God says he's speaking with a loud voice, you should really pay attention. I mean, I, I, my impression is this is probably the Bible's way of kind of bold-facing and underlining something. Everything God says is worth listening to, but when, when God feels the need to raise his voice, this is this. Pay attention. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, now the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. It really was beautiful, and it was tear-jerking sometimes at those graduation ceremonies when you'd see the ceremony end, and they're done. And the recruits, or I shouldn't call them recruits anymore, Coast Guardsmen at that point, would rush up to the stands to see their families. The families would rush down. No more separation, especially for those who were married, who sometimes would grab their baby in their arms. No more separation at this point, not like this. Now we're living back together. Now I'm coming home. And you'd see a lot of tears being wiped away. Do you see that this is what God's looking forward to? He is looking forward to the day that he can say, death, mourning, sadness, crying, pain, enough. We don't do that anymore. It was necessary to accomplish what I needed to 
for your boot camp experience, for the challenges, for the things that we did, for what it accomplished. It was necessary. But I don't do that anymore. That's, that's done. It's something that was necessary, but you can see how much God himself is looking forward to saying, enough. We don't do that anymore. You're coming home. We're going to be back together. You're not separated. You're not isolated. You're not on deployment. You're not in boot camp anymore. You're coming home. And what's the very first thing, recorded here at least, that God himself is planning to do when he sees you? He will wipe every tear from their eyes. This is not a God who's just looking down saying, oh, suffering, yeah, at least I don't have to deal with it. It's good for you. Christians, we worship a God who is in control of every suffering that happens. Secondly, we we worship a God who knows what suffering feels like. And you are following being led by the hand of a God who hates seeing you suffer and who is looking forward to the day that he can literally wipe every tear from your eyes. Now, that's why I trust him. That's what it means to take up the shield of faith. We trust that he is in charge. He's controlling everything. Nothing is going to escape his hand, but it's not going to escape the hand of someone who knows what the suffering is like and who's looking forward to the day that he can eradicate it and make it simply a memory. In the meanwhile... Christians, brothers, and sisters, we're in boot camp. But why do I say that? The last couple scriptures, just I'm not going to have you turn here, but perhaps you're familiar. In the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul said it this way when he said that our light and momentary sufferings are achieving for us a weight of glory that will be outweighed by them all. Would you typically describe most of your sufferings or at least some of the main ones that you've had as, oh, that's just light and momentary, That's not the first words that typically come to our mind, but that's how he was describing it. Why? Or, think of it this way, uh, the book of Romans. Romans, in fact, let me, let's let's close here. Let's turn with me to Romans chapter 8. If you turn here with me, we'll close with this. I would like you to just read this one with me. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. And tell me if you don't see quite the metaphor or analogy of boot camp to what I'm about to read here. What I would try to remind the recruits is, yes, okay, your suffering is challenging, difficult, it's painful, and and you had to move back a week. And sometimes they're in my office, I don't know how I can handle this. I had to move back a week. It's going to be another week before I see my family again. And, And the challenge and the pain, and I, I show them as much compassion, I understand. At the same time, Those of you who have been alive a long time, how long is a week? Relatively, really. I mean, granted, I wouldn't want to be there for a week, but in the grand scheme of your entire life, and sometimes I would remind them this, you're here for how long? Eight weeks, maybe nine weeks, maybe ten weeks, depending on how things go, but generally about eight weeks. How long is your career going to be in the Coast Guard? Four years, six years, 20 years? Do you think that when someone's about to retire, maybe they're having that retirement ceremony after 25 years of active service in the Coast Guard, that the first thing they think about when they wake up in that morning is, that one week I got held back in boot camp, that was miserable. It's probably not going to be the first thing in their mind. It was painful in the moment, okay? Don't get me wrong. When that happens, you have to pack your things, you call your family to say, I'm going to be another week. 
in the moment, that is crushing on them. I've seen it. I've heard the story so many times. In the grand scheme of things, is that going to destroy them? Is that going to even be a bump on the road in their life? And that's essentially what Paul's trying to remind us. Yes, this world hurts. There's challenges. There's difficulties. There's the suffering we face. Compare that to eternity. This world is our boot camp to prepare us for all the things that await us in eternal life when God's eradicated suffering. Look at the words here, how he says it. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. The glory that's going to be revealed in you for eternal life. Now, this world is real. There are challenges. We are in a battlefield. In many ways, we are in a boot camp where God's allowing challenges that are kind of unique to this particular part of life for us that are not going to exist in real life. But those boot camp experiences are there to prepare us, to shape us, to make us ready to appreciate, to make us everything we need to be, to be able to serve him into eternity. So, my brothers and sisters in Christ, take up that shield of faith. Finally, one reminder. And again, this is the same reminder I would give to the recruits at Cape May. As I mentioned before, the term faith in in this context refers to more than just saving faith. It's talking about trusting God in all things. But it's not less than saving faith. Trusting God means trusting him for your life for your health, for your family, for your relationships, for your career, for all of these other things. And it also includes trusting him for salvation, trusting him alone for salvation. These promises are not simply vague promises. They don't just trust that everything's going to work out. These promises are for those who are trusting in him for everything, primarily for those who are trusting him for their salvation. You know the great promise, and I'm going to close with this. Go ahead and take a look a few verses down. Many of you, I'm sure, have heard the passage before, but a reminder of who this is written to, Romans chapter 8, verse 28. We know that for who? All things are working together for good. For those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. It's not just a blanket promise. You can just figure, oh, things are going to work out fine somehow. This promise that the God who sent his son onto the cross, the Jesus who died for us, who's working all these things out, he's looking forward to the day he's eradicating pain. This is a promise for his people who are trusting him. Make sure that's real because the trust, the promises, the life that we have when we take up that shield of faith is glorious. Friends, brothers, and sisters in Christ, take up the shield of faith with which you can put out those fiery arrows of the evil one. Amen. I could introduce it now. I believe we'll be doing a hymn before we prepare for the Lord's table.